Hello, and welcome to this new edition of the Fuji Podcast. And today we are going to talk about security. Welcome to the Fuji Podcast, all your news about OpenJDK. For this Fuji Podcast, we invited security experts to dive into the world of safe coding and detecting vulnerabilities in your Java applications. And how can we make and keep your system safe? That's what we're going to find out. So let's go around and introduce each guest. Uh, well, hello there. Um, my name is Steve Paul. I work for Sonatype. I'm a developer advocate, surprise. Um, but uh, my background is JVM engineering and uh, in the Java space, spent a long time at IBM and Red Hat. And my passion really is what we're talking about here is how do we get developers to learn more about security and how do we help them create safer software? Hey there, I'm uh, Brian. Uh, Brian Vermeer, working for Sneak, also as a developer advocate. <laughs> we got two of them in the house. I've been a long-term uh, Java engineer. Before I joined Sneak, I was a, a consultant working on long-term projects for both governments, but also uh, independent um, companies. And uh, I, well, run into security because... Uh, I find it interesting, but also I made some screw-ups over the last couple of years and uh, now trying to um, do it from the other side and help people. Hi, everyone. My name is Nastasi, and I'm a security engineer. I work at Kozak Labs, which is data security and cryptography company. And like data security is my specialization. I do a lot things related with encryption, like building and designing encryption protocols, center encryption, making sure that developers who create applications, they do it securely and basically helping them to design, build security subsystems in their systems. I mostly deal with mobile applications and huge, huge distributed applications like power grids, like like critical infrastructure, and I'm in um, in Ukraine. So for the last nine months, I deal with totally different and unexpected side of cybersecurity. And I'm Eric Koslow. I'm Senior Director of Product Management for Azul. I work on Java virtual machines as well as Azul vulnerability detection. Uh, I've done Java security for about a decade now and helped out a lot with the security of uh, Java 8 back when uh, it had some difficulties. All right. Now, in Fuji, we have a number of community articles that are written uh, at different points of times. And Brian, you've written a couple articles about managing Java dependencies, how to keep them secure. Um, and also, you've written some interesting thing about data transfer objects and their role in security. So can you talk a little bit about your, your articles that you've written about uh, managing dependencies? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the biggest thing is that we are all always focusing, and I think that developers in general are focusing on creating new stuff, creating new features. We're all, all already working feature-based. Um, a lot of things we create, security is not yet part of that mindset, like scalability and maintainability is, and we should. One of the things is people are thinking about their own code, but have no clue what kind of code they implicitly inherit uh, by their dependency tree. Um, what do I pu uh, pull into my application? What uh, kind of trends of dependencies come in? How do I need to update? Do I need to update? All these kinds of things um, are happening and people are looking at their tests and their tests are only um, functional as in what kind of features do or do not break. Uh, 
what I found interesting is that if you, if I looked at my past couple of jobs and I looked at a Maven pump file from one of the major banks here in the Netherlands, um, there were things like three different XML parsers uh, in there. The question is why? Because people build on top of things that already exist, uh, have no clue when they need to update because that breaks things, et cetera, et cetera. So I think managing your dependencies as much as we do that with your own code, like reviewing your code, doing pair programming to make it better, faster, stronger, and hopefully more secure, we should do the same with things as your dependencies. And in that article, I looked at some things you can do as an engineer. It doesn't need to be hard. Um, also, what kind of things can we automate, etc. So um, I think that's a, I wanted to give a good guideline to and your average developer that wants to think of building new stuff, uh, but how should we take care of what is already existing in your code base? Yeah, I know. Uh, what was it? Uh, which version of Java deprecated the XML parsers? Do you recall that off the top of your head? Oh, I'm on Java Jeopardy question there, Brian. That's a Java Jeopardy question. Yeah. We should we should write that one down. I have no clue which one uh, which one do, does that. But one of the things I know, for instance, on on um, XML parsers uh, that are still available in the JDK, all of them by default are vulnerable to external entity injection. People don't know that. So that is a thing you should know about defaults. But uh, a lot of people pull in other things and have no clue that either it's already available in the JDK or are not familiar with that. So let's pull in another one. And that comes with a ton of other dependencies, which in the end, somewhere deep down below, there might be one that is a tiny little bit vulnerable and can and you can create a domino effect from that point. Yeah, you've also got like the XML bombs that you can hit people's applications with. Uh, but I think in the role of dependencies, uh, what's the phrase? The more, the merrier. <laughs> I think the more, the merrier is um, what uh, pragmatically happens. Uh, well, from from a design point of view, everybody would say the less, the better. But the more, the merrier. Yeah, I, I love that phrase. Let's. Uh, I, I think that's uh, that p- paints the picture quite well. Yeah. The more libraries we come across, the more problems we see. Yes, definitely. It's a numbers game in the end, right? But yeah, true. Absolutely. Your other article refers to data transfer objects and their role in security, which is uh, an aspect that I've actually seen a number of vulnerable systems fail to implement. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the, the role of why you would want a data transfer object versus just taking your core entity straight from a database or a NoSQL uh, database and just spitting it out there serialized to someone on the internet? I think the most important part is um, it starts with the design of your application. You need to think security from the get-go, from the start. If I have my domain entities, domain entities contain all sorts of meta information that you probably might, you might think it doesn't hurt if people know it, but if you combine certain things like IDs with, um, with certain endpoints, it might end up that with the, with that knowledge, you can disclose information that you don't want to get out. So what you want to do is you want to separate the logic on the business side from whatever hits the client, either if it's a website or a mobile application, only show what needs to be shown. For instance, um, if you don't need an ID of a client at for, for a certain use case or for a certain call, don't give it 
if you do need it, then you have a purpose. If you don't, you might want to you might want to uh, take that away. So with the DTO, you um, with a data transfer object, you separate these two layers from each other, and you only give from one piece from one part of the subsystem to another. You only um, give the information uh, that is needed. What happens alongside if you do it with uh, domain entities? And in the beginning, it might be a very small kind of MVP situation. But things grow over time and new things will be added and will be added. And are you still aware of what's happening or not? And if that is the case, then it can end up that in a certain rest endpoint, you by accident, you give the full entity that discloses too much information that can end up in a, well, PII violation or basically a violation of personal identifiable data that's getting out and then you have a data leak. So I think the separation with DTOs um, is a good start. It, it's a part, it's not the end, but it's a good um, thing to, to, to use. Right. And Anastasia, I see you've dealt a lot with that in the field of encryption. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with Brian here that um, having the separate middle layer, let's call it this way, right? To handle, to process some business logic has a huge uh, benefits for, um, for encryption, for data privacy um, methods and mechanisms. For example, the thing that I see right now that is rising is uh, field level encryption, which means that in the systems, we have certain sensitive fields. It could be PI, it could be PHI, right? It could be any data sensitive for your particular application, for your particular use case. And what systems it creates that in the middle, we have some kind of proxy, some kind of backend service that will encrypt and decrypt those sensitive fields. And um, this type of middle layer allows to separate encryption and all related things with encryption like key management, logging, proper error, error handling, masking for people who, for users that are not allowed to get, to have access to plain text, right? We can mask data for them. So in this middle layer, we can put everything and build like an isolated environment, um, I don't know, a fence, if you want, with authentication. And it works great from data security perspective. Yeah, also probably if you can uh, encrypt some of the information that's like unique to somebody's account, it prevents them from making a lateral movement into someone else's account. Absolutely, absolutely. And with field level encryption, the data breaches, they become not so serious anymore because the data is encrypted on a field level. It means that the data is encrypted somewhere before it gets to the database, right? So good luck uh, having access to the database. The most important fields are encrypted there. Yeah, I think one of the things I regularly see with a lot of Java applications that use a, an entity ORM like Hibernate is a situation where you take what is the Hibernate entity for JPA that has the annotations like at ID uh, or the other elements there. And then that's just serialized out to a REST API. So all of the clients who call your API have your individual data keys. So you can, as a consumer of that API, just go start combing through uh, other IDs. And very frequently you will get uh, other people's information returned to you because 
there's no break between a REST API and the Hibernate entities that you get to query. You have a lot of similar stuff in the NoSQL space, but those keys tend to be a little more random, whereas in the SQL world, they're frequently auto-generated and incremented. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, we make the design more complicated for us as for developers and architects, right? At the same time, we decrease the chances of security weaknesses and vulnerabilities significantly. So this is exactly the case when a little bit of engineering gives better results in the future. The thing I see with this, with, with security in general, right? And we talked here about, you know, dependencies and things. Why do people pick extra XML parsers? Well, they don't, but they have a problem they want to solve. And they go look for some example and they pull in a dependency and that pulls in a bunch of other dependencies. But they don't care. They don't track it because developers aren't measured on these things. You know, security is not a, um, a function that they're responsible for. We know they should be. But it's it's just been factored out. You know, if if security was like performance, then there'd be a lot more focus on it. But because it because it isn't, and because developers are so pressured on productivity, you know that they're going to go and find those extra libraries that help them do the job quicker, and you know they're going to pull in more dependencies because that's what they're being paid to do. And you know, the things we're talking about, how to help them do things better. It's really strange, but basically the ones that stick are the ones that give them other benefits. So like having data objects gives you performance benefits and just luckily you get an extra level of security. Quite often the way that people fix, the way that their security gets better is by accident, you know, and we need to figure out how to make it by design. And in terms of design, some of the things that we've talked about is the role of getting libraries, um, the role of having a couple different XML parsers, updating those, and then creating a layer in between, um, like you were talking about before, in terms of you know maybe the developers aren't the ones who build the cryptographic solutions. Um, so Anastasia, I know you've written a couple articles about like cryptographic failures and RF encryption. And for Java developers, we tend to go after the Java cryptographic architecture and just the the baked in components. Um, But what should we know about some of the failures that people get whenever they try to design their own cryptographic systems? Well, a short answer, you should not. If you don't have a proper cryptography education, please do not design your own cryptographic protocol or subsystem, even if it looks really easy to do so. Because probably you're thinking only about successful scenario, but you don't take into consideration all the worlds of typical cryptographic mistakes, starting from constant time computation through side channels, through uh, different kind of attacks, yada, yada, yada. Cryptography is complicated as a, as a math, as a science, but the design of cryptographic systems, it's even more complicated because it's a mix of software design, right, resilience, security design, yada, yada, and cryptography. One of the things I would like to mention here is that sometimes the mistakes are not obvious for developers just because there are like these are different areas of thinking, different mind maps. Uh, if you know about latest metrics, issues, the metrics, the end-to-end encryption like protocol and the software built, like decentralized signal kind of, 
Uh, they have really great end-to-end encryption protocol, but lately the, they published uh, a bunch of vulnerabilities, like a group of cryptographic experts audited the matrix protocol and the implementation, and they published really fascinating papers. Why fascinating? Because they enumerate a number of problems, starting from cryptography design to implementation mistakes. You know, with cryptography, it's always like that. You can have really large issues on design, but then you will put a wrong parameter in a wrong place and you will have problems with implementation as well. It's really complicated. And in my job, I, of course, I'm biased because I mostly deal with bad and broken and imperfect cryptographic systems. But what I see that when developers try to do that, please stick to existing solutions. Or if you think that your use case is different please like try to get assistance or consultancy from security engineers or cryptography engineers because cryptography is a science there are people who are trained and skilled to do this can can i also jump in and say uh, a cryptographic joke because there aren't that many of them i don't think all right. In terms of designing your own crypto system, there's a an, an old crypto thing called ROT13, which is you just take the alphabet and you rotate it by 13 characters. Uh, but why does Santa Claus use ROT12.5? Go on then. Because Christmas has no L. Oh. Okay. Okay. You've got obviously got a book of dad jokes. Well done. No, I just kind of make up uh, all kinds of terrible things because it gets everybody to to groan. And then uh, it makes conversations and meetings shorter. <laughs> I have to remember that one. Um, so in terms of some of the different types of vulnerabilities, like the the things that people will design for like public crypto systems when they have a, a difficulty or a security problem in them, there's the concept of CVEs or common vulnerabilities and exposures. Um, and Steve, can you explain what those are and how they pertain to Java developers? It, they, it's been around for a long time and it's a scoring system. So the idea is how do you assess the impact of a vulnerability? So you score it, and um, I think it's been lost in the mist of time, so I'm not even sure when they first started. They've been around for a long time. And it's basically a whole bunch of things that look at how easy is it to exploit the vulnerability, um, how much damage can you do with the vulnerability, how um, how likely is it that somebody may have this. So some of these vulnerabilities get low scores because they're very hard to exploit, and they're very hard to, um, or they're very rare. Uh, and so, when you go to when you go to any of the websites and you look for you look for CVEs, you'll see scores, and you'll hear us talk about CVE tens, which is the perfect score, which means that it's the perfect vulnerability for the bad actors to exploit, all the way down to things like you know CVE ones and twos. But a um, couple of things to point out is that. Um, there's a public database for these things. So obviously there are people out reporting these. There is a process when a when a vulnerability is reported and anybody can report one, then the, there is a process that, for validating that, obviously by the people who own the, the reporting, the owning tech. There's a process for scoring it. Um, and then it's made publicly available. And hopefully by the time the CV gets published, there's a fix for it. But the thing to point out is that there's there's public databases for this, but there's also um, 
other databases. I mean, we have one, SNCC has one, other ones where, uh, because we have researchers who are also trying to find these vulnerabilities. The takeaway is, yes, look at the, keep looking at the public ones for sure, but also, you know, make sure that you're aware of the other solutions for these things. And the other thing, the way that CVEs are scored are scored on the idea that you as a, as you know, developer or whoever, whoever, wherever you're running the code, is doing it in a sane way. So if you are a developer and you've given everybody root access to your system, um, then all bets are off, and any small, any low value CV might actually be uh, effectively very high. So understand if it's a high CV CV number, go fix it now, and if it's a low CV number, still go and assess it because you never know it might be important. All right. In terms of those CVEs, they come in through through libraries, a couple other means, through individual applications. But um, within the JVM, we have a couple different layers. Like you have the JVM itself, you have the operating system, you have the the hosts and buckets and external things. Um, so, Brian, can you talk a little bit about what are some different security layers and tiers that Java developers should be paying attention to? You already mentioned the, the the JVM is 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 one of them. So updating your JVM or updating your Java version to a newer version that is patched uh, uh, is something that's critical. But think about this: like um, we used to think about our application alone. So that means our code or the stuff that we created and put on our our Git repository. Well, that's one layer. That's the most top layer, I guess. Then below that, you have the dependencies. We already discussed that. Everything you pull in to make your application work. But your application does not work in a vacuum. It comes with an environment, say a container or something like that, um, or an operating system. Well, if you look at, for instance, Docker containers, people pull in base images from, from registries and base their application that is in a container uh, on somebody else's container and just pull things in. Uh, is that image good? Is it based on an operating system that contains a ton of binaries that you might not need? Are these binaries outdated and have CVEs as well? Um very, very important. A very uh, funny one was, of course, uh, Image Magic, uh, like way, way back, which was so tragic. They called it Image Tragic, uh, and that's not a joke. It's actually true. Uh, and it, if it comes with your operating system and you put that on in your container, well, then you're part of that chain. Then up, uh, then you have things like your your uh, um, infrastructure as code your 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 kubernetes uh, instances how do you did you configure them did you give them enough pri uh, uh, privileges or too much uh, so there are so many different layers and if you look at a single system yeah then you had definitely have your operating system if for java your jvm and then everything you pull on top of that so you can look at it from different angles but nowadays, everything is part of your code or your code base or your configuration, which again is part of your code base. And that means that in the end, as a development team or DevOps team, you are responsible for the whole thing. And I think developers or core developers do not yet grasp that ID and still are with their eyes and their focus on their own code and maybe a bit of their dependencies, but that's pretty much it. So we have to look further than that because the rest is also part of the application or the landscape or whatever you might call it. 
Yeah, I've seen that a lot where people say, that's not a problem in my code. That's a problem in Apache code. Like you don't just inherit the benefits of what the library does. You inherit the drawbacks of the other things that it does. Absolutely. And if you think of it the other way around, like say you are my my manager or you're the CEO of the company I work for. I am your your head of engineering or I lead that engineering team that makes that service. If something goes wrong, you come to me, you come to my team. You don't care if it is a dependency in code, if it is a dark container that's uh, that that costs it. In the end, my team, me and my team need to solve this, are responsible for whatever comes out. And if you think it from if you take it from that uh, angle, people are like, yeah, sure. We're also responsible for the performance, like Steve was t- saying earlier, and that is me- and, and you can measure performance. Security, not. And it goes well unless you're not getting breached or nothing happens. But if it goes wrong, it comes back to the team and uh, good DevOps practitioners know then we have to fix it. Yeah, a place I've seen this go awry with Java developers in particular and Java application operators is with like jar file signatures, because there's this whole capability there where you can sign a jar file. Um, But there's a question of who signs it, because you don't have to sign it to publish. So you have a lot of these unsigned jars. And of course, everybody who ships software will be like, I'm not going to sign this third party library that I got. And it's like, you're the one who shipped it. So when you kind of take over custodianship or provenance at a part of the the software supply chain, you should cryptographically sign whatever you are shipping so that people can actually look and say like, that's the jar file that I got from, you know, XYZ Co. Yeah. And that's a lovely idea. Uh, But what we know is that almost nobody checks them. Yeah. Nobody, nobody does it. Nobody signs it. Nobody checks them. Yeah, well, even the ones that do get signed, we, you know, it's very, it's pretty clear that uh, it's not checked. You know, all those places where you can download code binaries, whatever, and there's some signature, people don't check them. It's a very irregular activity. Well, but that's different depending on the ecosystem. In different ecosystems, people actually check the signatures of the third-party libraries. Right in iOS, if I'm not mistaken, there are several package managers like Copods or Apple Swift package manager. They have this step and it's not optional. But in iOS, you, you can imagine that Apple has very strict ways for developers to work with their code and signatures there with the developer profile. It's a huge headache for developers, but yeah, it might worth a risk. Um, one more thing here to mention is like circling back to CVEs. As Steve mentioned, uh, V stands for vulnerability, right? But not everything that is wrong in security, in, like in application security becomes a vulnerability. So what I see often that developers really, or security teams, they really focus on vulnerabilities and on these CVE scores. Like let's ignore everything that has lower score. But uh, except for vulnerabilities, we still have WCWE, which stands for weaknesses. And in OWASP top 10, which enumerates the largest top 10 risks, right? These are just typical mistakes. In the latest OWASP top 10, um, there is a separate section, like one of the risks, which is called insecure design, 
which is basically, and this was the first time in 2021, it is the first time in OWASP top 10 where we have design section suddenly. And the goal is to focus developers' attention on the lower, the beginning side of SSDLC, Secure Software Development Lifecycle. Let's start thinking about design. Let's start thinking about weaknesses and potential weaknesses before we even go to code and secure coding, dependencies and dependency management, and looking and fixing vulnerabilities. So fundamentally, that's the sort of thing we've got to we've got to figure out: is how do we get the developer communities to pay attention to these things? You know, and the information is out there, and it's getting better. So absolutely, forgetting. Teaching developers how to write safer code is the you know one of the ultimate goals here. Um, I just want to just check because one other thing I want to say about CVEs because um, it's something that we've seen change, and this is this thorny question of how long do you have from a CVE being reported to you actually fixing it? And unfortunately, nowadays, with the very high severity ones that come out the chances are that it's already being exploited before it gets published. So again, you know, not trying to be a doomsday here, but it's important to people understand that that the other thing they have to invest in is being able to apply these fixes, especially the high severity ones, as soon as physically possible, because you just don't have time anymore to, to wait. Yeah, you actually uh, have to patch this stuff because it's not about the zero day attacks, but let's say 30, 60, you know, 365 days after the vulnerability came out. If you're still running, trucking along with that old vulnerability, somebody's going to come by. You can go to things like exploit DB or, you know, GitHub search for the CVE and then often POC, and you'll just get a bunch of exploit payloads that you can use to attack stuff. And the longer that vulnerable library sits inside of your application that's running, the more likely it is that somebody's just going to come along and find it. I also think that we do not only need to focus on the high severity ones because I think it's a misunderstanding for folks like, oh, this one is low, uh, the, the vulnerability scores is low, If either if it's a CVE or a CW, whatever score it is, it's low. We don't need to need to fix that because there's no direct attack path. And I think there is a problem as well, as well because different things can connect together. If you look at um, security breaches, it's Almost is never as big as, well, we probably will cover it later, the log4j one, which was a direct hit. Uh, it's probably something that connects to something else, to something else, to something else. So a chain of problems connected to each other. And then in the end, it is it, the, the, the CVE might have a score of three or four, like reasonably low, but because it's part of a chain, it can still be harmful depending on whatever is in your application. And it can be a combination of whatever is in your application code, your, your the binaries that you pull in from, from, from the operating system, the, uh, the Docker container, the everything all together combined, there might be a path that a, even a small CV can be very harmful to you. So just watching on course and saying like is this big or small and hopefully we we can can get to a point that we get to zero and i get i, I know that it, that that's 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 of course not possible for most companies but just keep that in mind that that a cve is or a, a vulnerability is not always a direct hit it can be just be, be in a in a chain of attacks and harm you uh, uh midair basically 
Yeah. So I personally like working on different analogies or just ways to make um, the security topics fun instead of the boring old risk guy who comes over and talks to you. And one of the ideas that I'm working on now is the concept of like CVEs as Pokemon, because you have for Pokemon for years, they've walked around with that theme song of you got to catch them all. But the fact is, there's so many uh, of these little animal Pokemon things around that you know that not all of them are particularly important, but there's some of them that you have to focus on at different times. But still, the goal is to become the world's greatest Pokemon trainer or CVE catcher in an enterprise capacity. So I think I got to workshop that a little bit, but I might be onto something. I'm, uh, I'm curious what the title of the workshop uh, will be. No, you just got to workshop a joke where you kind of try different permutations of it to see how <laughs> oh, it works. Case. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we could try that. That would be cool. Pokemon Workshop for Java developers. Yeah. yeah. So, of yeah, course, the, the real other challenge in all this is that these CVEs aren't necessarily in your code. In fact, the chances are they're not in your code. They're in one of these dependencies that you pulled in or the dependency of the dependency of the dependency you pulled in. So you've got to know you've got it which is a challenge in itself. And then you've got to figure out how you're going to fix it. Um, obviously, if it's a dependency tree, you always have the ability to override those versions and pick some new version, but then it's got to work and you've got to test it. And you can see why, even though we all understand why this is important to do, it's still hard for developers and and um, businesses to get their head around how they do it effectively. So it's still a technical challenge because... Um, you know, the figures are something like 80-90% of your application is written by somebody else. And therefore, 80-90% or of the CVEs that turn up, actually probably 100% of the CVEs that turn up, are in somebody else's code. And so you have all that challenge as well. But if you want to override them, that means you need to know your build system, Steve. Come on. Who yeah. knows what to build? Who knows what to build the steps of of, of Maven? Oh, come on! I mean, people are still people are still doing clean install. So yeah, that's now, what I, I, do. I guess. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I think that's that's the point. Like people don't know how the how some of their tools work, Ooh. and that 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 you that you're able to override these kind of things. Which dependency wins? Either if you're if you're a Maven guy or a Gretel guy or whatever. Yeah, I think oh, uh, I think it starts over there already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah library maintainers they don't make this work easier because remember the recent drama with OpenSSL, right? OpenSSL has announced that they have the critical vulnerability, and everyone was like super prepared to what we have. Like this is an OpenSSL. OpenSSL is used everywhere. Okay, almost everywhere including these dependencies of dependencies of dependencies. And many of these dependencies, unfortunately, link OpenSSL statically into their code, which means that they have linked a certain version of op and it won't change until you update the dependency, right? Uh, but, the, and everyone so was like, everyone was super prepared and we were waiting forward for this critical vulnerability. But then OpenSSL maintainers said that, well, okay, we read things, we decided to decrease the vulnerability level from critical to high. So they announced two high vulnerabilities. High is still high, especially for OpenSSL. But when we actually read what these vulnerabilities are about, they are about parsing email from XML, right? Emails from TLS certificates, to be precise. It's not something you do very often, 
in your application, and it's not something libraries use OpenSSL for. So the use case is very, very rare. So what I see from the community, the reaction was, oh, okay, these are not so um, important. We can skip this update. Yeah, 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 it still has two high vulnerabilities, but come on, we don't use this code, right? So uh, what I'm saying that we still have a lot of libraries, extremely popular libraries, basically things that the whole internet is working on. And when those maintainers release new patches for new vulnerabilities, it it makes everyone like it um, makes everyone suffer. It triggers and alerts everyone. Yeah, so that's actually one of the things I think Java gets right is the fact that the libraries are still there, effectively dynamically linked because it's just in time compiled. Um, generally speaking, so you can actually see what some of the dependencies are. And theoretically, you can update the JVM to patch vulnerabilities in the JVM that gives some level of control over the aspects. Um, unlike OpenSSL, where when you statically compile in a vulnerable version, you are effectively screwed forever on that uh, distribution. Um, and I pasted a link in here. I think it was uh, a couple years ago that what was it? GraalVM was statically compiling um, secure random or random seeds into the compiled binary. Well, to some extent, that still that still happens every now and then. I mean, I know in a a bunch of companies they're not using a package manager to do. Uh, to download the uh, packages for you. So you have a manifest. No, they basically copy and paste either the complete jar into a separate file or put it in the class loader. Or even worse, they copy paste parts of the code and put that in their application. So it's very hard to find. I know that uh, some engineers, uh, engineering managers also that I know had a, had a bunch of problems uh, by solving that. Uh, for instance, with the log4j situation last year, uh, that people statically had that code, that vulnerable version, as part of their Java application compiled. Um, so it's it's we have the opportunity not to do it, and still, in some cases, people still do it. Unfortunately, yeah, I've I don't know if you guys have seen the whole bunch of jar files committed to the source repo, but why? I don't know why people do it, but they just download a bunch of jar files, shove them in um, the source repo, and then they commit that as a big old binary blob. Yeah, it happens. It's a nice, easy way to get your binaries distributed. Put your build tools into your source repo. Yeah. These I mean, it guarantees happen. they'll be there when you look. Yeah. Hey, it works on my machine, right? Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong, right? But you see, this comes back to what I was saying about the, the visibility of this, is that we chuckle at this, but it is an education thing. It is understanding why these things are, are are not the right thing to do. And so we, we can teach developers that, but we've also got to teach them to take a better look at the tools they use. You know, one of the things that so often you find that people just do the Stack Overflow thing. How do I do X, Y, Z? Go Google for it. And Stack Overflow says, use this tool. And they do it. And, you know, I one of the things I when I talk to developers, I say, can you tell me the difference between wget um, and curl, why would you use one versus the other? And it's like, I don't know, I just stack overflow one and that's what I use. You know, they have different use cases. And it's like all these tools, you should know a bit more about the tools you use. 
um, especially around the security space of this. All right. So throughout this discussion, we've been coming to kind of three key roles, which is a developer, you got DevOps, so you have the operator, and then you have an architect. So um, let's get into what are the individual security responsibilities for each uh, group there? Well, first of all, I think it's you have to operate as a team um, and communicate, which is sometimes hard. And yes, we laugh about it, but it sometimes is. Um, I think for an architect, it starts with design, like like what kind of stuff do we have? What kind of data, for instance, do we have in our system? Do we actually need that data? How do we distribute that data? Do we have separation of concerns uh, between sub subsystem A and subsystem B? The, the things we already talked about with DTOs, for instance. But that is an architectural kind of kind of thing. Uh, if you look at the developer. Um, and then I think developer and DevOps are nowadays a bit intertwined. Uh, there is there's no f- hard boundary between them. I think that was the intention of DevOps in the end, anyway. Uh, so creating, say, as a developer, you're creating stuff, and that means that you nowadays think of, hey, am I scalable and am I and is the code maintainable? But now, if you are an autonomous team, you also need to make sure that your solutions to that specific problem are safe, are secure, that your code is secure, that everything you pull in, your 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 dependencies, we talked about that a couple of times, are, are secure and stay secure over time. So redo that analysis. Um, and for DevOps, uh, it also means that making sure that am I able to, for instance, deploy something right away. Say we talked about we talked about zero days, and I find out right at this moment that something is wrong. How much time does it take for me to change out that simple library? Just take a simple solution, simple library. I switch it out, rebuild my application, and distribute it either to production or distribute it to my clients. That sounds super easy, but in many cases, it's not. Uh, because it takes days, weeks, months to build that application, and then you have a bigger problem. And I think that is something you need to uh, address as well. And I think that is for the, the the DevOps part. Like, hey, do we have pipelines? Do we have all these tools available and all these uh, all these new kind of ways of of building things that we actually can distribute it right away, so that my customers and my users are not um, experiencing the problems we try to warn them for. When you have pipelines, yes, but there's also a lot of things like um, infrastructure software or you know Java things that people get, and they don't run it through any pipelines. Like you just go download like a Kafka and then you put it up. Um, you don't really need to build it because you just you don't. So generally speak, pe- speaking, uh, people don't have large pipelines for uh, all pieces of software. I I absolutely agree. I just picked a few things. Out yeah. Just to to just to see that there there's a, there's a shared respons- responsibility between all of the folks to know what's happening, to know where the problem is, and the problem is basically everywhere, uh, and that we communicate about that and 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 be aware of that it can happen everywhere. The deployment part, the build processes, have to be automated, and you have to know what software you've got in there. Developers have the same responsibility because they're the ones that are choosing the dependencies. Somebody somewhere goes, I need that XML library. And so they've got to be better at making those choices and they've got to look harder at those choices. And sometimes it's going to become, don't take that whacking great XML library for that one function. Go write it yourself because in the end of the day, you may be safer that way. Um, And the other thing 
that we've got to do. Coming back to things like the the CWEs uh, the, and the OWASP thing, there's a whole bunch of rules out there and guidelines on how to write um, safer software. You know, even from input validation to other things. And those have, we've got to get our developers to pay attention to those. You know, they they somehow, and I'm not sure how or why, but over the years that sort of part of software engineering has disappeared, and we need to bring it back. So that one. Um, but the build that and the build stuff as well, because as Brian said, you've got to be able to build this stuff quickly. Yeah, totally. But also, I think that in our like um, imaginary team with developers, DevOps, and architects, uh, security engineers are missing because there are still a lot of work to do, like to be done, like risk assessment, threat modeling, like um, using different checklists and standards, like OWASP, SVS. Who will do this? Developers? No, they are busy with features. They are busy with releases. DevSecOps, DevOps, they are busy with pipelines, with infrastructures. Architects, they are busy with design, right? But still, there are so many things to do from security perspective. And security for business is just one of these non-functional requirements. As you, as we mentioned previously, it's not something that can be seen. It's more like a negative, like waste of money activity that potentially can prevent huge money losses in future. So someone should work on a strategic level. Someone should work on like um, thinking about the future, thinking about loss prevention. And these could be security people, security officers, security engineers, you can call them whatever. They have different roles because security engineering is a huge like umbrella term with different specialties inside. But also like a security manager, if you can say it, someone who guides the team using SSDLC, right? Someone who will tell developers what is good and what is bad from SSDLC perspective. These are the roles and sometimes these people are different. I mean, we have like certain roles and people are doing only this job. And sometimes we have something called like a purple team or security champions, meaning that we have like an ordinary um, software engineers that do security, that perform certain security functions. Okay, yeah, plus one of that as well, yes. I think you hit the nail right on its head there, Anastasia. I mean, I think that, and that comes also back to what Steve was saying, that a lot is, is, is in education as well. So if you don't have security folks, the security team, security engineering team, how big you ever want to make it, uh, as an engineer, I come to a conclusion like, okay, I need to do something, but I'm not, I'm not sure how to handle this. Then you need to have somebody to go there. Uh, and there needs to be a line between the security team and the development team, if we can call it like, and hopefully there is a security champion that is that proxy between there. But if it's not there, there, there still needs to be guidance from a security perspective or else uh, well, we will fail miserably, I'm, I'm afraid. So one of the things I've been really interested in uh, working on is the the fact that Java has done a really good job of becoming uh, effectively a blue-collar programming language so that you don't have to learn the ivory tower development styles. And it was never the first to do anything. Like It wasn't the first to do memory management and free people up from having to know about pointers. 
Um, you know, whereas people used to have to learn all sorts of intricate libraries to do, you know, database calls or XML parsing, Java introduced a lot of those through standard APIs. So one of the parts that I'm really interested in work, uh, working on is the role of how can we make the JVM essentially free the developer's mind from having to worry about a lot of the security flaws of today? And what are some of the ways that we can look at what's gone on in the industry over the last you know, 10, 15 years and make Java start automating some of those things again? That's a very good question. And I think it starts with secure defaults. Uh, a lot of them are secure, but I already mentioned before that uh, the XML parsers in Java are by default vulnerable to uh, external entities. For instance, in a lot of the uh, in a lot of other languages, this is all this is already solved. Um, other things are well, obviously things like deserialization. It's the gift that keeps on keeps on giving. Uh, so there are features we can work on to not enable more of these uh, these problem but i would love to give the the floor to the others as well to see what yeah well this because <laughs> i'm i'm like you i'm going how do i ask this question so absolutely we could imagine doing something with serialization to reduce its hit but that's gonna break a few things but still not it's still worth looking um modularity is good um reducing the scope of classes that so that you can't load things that's cool um uh, we've got, you know, seal classes, seal jars, things like that. There are there are a few things out there that we could use better. I think serialization is always comes up as being the number one thing um, because it's easy to do that. There's no security, there's no real security model within the, the JVM. So there's no real separation between user code and system code, which some other systems have. So, you know, that might might be a possibility. But um I don't know. I look at Java as it's mostly just a programming language, and it's not. This isn't really a Java problem. Um, <clears throat> in fact, in some ways, Java is just slightly better because it's strongly typed. We can, you know, we can analyze the bytecode better than some of the scripting languages. And with, I mean, <clears throat> almost just by accident, with things like Maven Central, where you have to own the domain of the package name to register it. That cuts down a whole bunch of the, the 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 classic sort of attacks that you get in the, some of the other repos. But as a, um, I don't know, as a, is there a fundamental something different we could do with Java? I'm not sure there is. Well, one of the things that we've been working on is the role of making the JVM actually know the components that it's running and report those to an off-stream system so that you can go back and look and say, you know, I've used this vulnerable version of log4j in the past. Um, and we just launched some capabilities to do that. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, tracking what the JVM has run. Have you used deserialization in the past, which is one of the sets of security flaws? Have you used what these components are? Um, what if in the process of just-in-time optimizations that a JVM does, if it recognizes you don't actually need these modules, so you can start to remove them and make them inaccessible in future runs, 
rather than having to force the developer to J-link in advance and remove them, you could effectively take advantage of the, the things that the JIT knows to improve yeah. the security of something as it runs. Yeah, you're quite right. And and to be honest, take it further than that, you can just do the Graal thing and just compile your, your Java code to native. That, that cuts through a lot of these issues. Yeah, but then you statically compile vulnerabilities in in a way that only the original operator can update later. Uh, well, it depends if the vulnerability um, um, comes with it, but... Uh, right, but now we're back to kind of the open SSL style where yeah. people end up statically linking yeah. to that older vulnerable version, and now you have that there in perpetuity. All right, um, so Java got its start uh, in terms of tiny, low embedded devices and has really moved up to the enterprise um, and Anastasia, I know you work on a lot of tiny IoT devices. Do you do you have any security insights into what goes on in that ecosystem? Yeah, this is a disaster. Okay, so <laughs> being honest, um, the thing with these small IoT devices or like even industrial IoT, like IoT, you know this joke. S stands for security, right? The thing with these devices is that um, often they don't have update or upgrade path. So the code that you ship on these devices probably will work there until device is broken, right? Of course, it depends on the system, depends on device, depends on the architecture, but really in many, many cases, you ship only once. And you can imagine that you ship with all the vulnerabilities that you had on that moment in time. And in security, we don't have um, the saying that your system is secure. No, your system is always insecure. Even if you don't have any existing vulnerabilities as for today, as for this morning, on the evening situation may change new CVs, new, new vulnerabilities. So it's always a race. And with these IoT devices, you, you don't participate in this race anymore, right? So uh, this gives one of the major risks. So the less code you have on this device, it, it's kind of better because the probability is that you will have less vulnerability there. Another issue is that with low power devices, again, devices are different. Raspberry Pi is also considered as IoT device, but Raspberry Pi can have, like my first PC was not as powerful as modern Raspberry Pi, right? So Raspberry Pi has a lot of, um, it has good CPU, has a lot of RAM, has a lot of storage and can work on Linux. But when we're talking about really low power devices, it make, it means that the components, libraries we use for them, they are different. Just because we don't have enough RAM, we don't have enough space to, to create like uh, large applications. So we often end up with C. C language, again, that's a disaster from security perspective. And the latest OpenSSL vulnerabilities is a good illustration of how C is still float in 2022. For many, many years that we work with C, we still have the same mistakes again and again and again, right? All this combined gives us a millions or even billions of insecure devices. And don't forget that um, in many, many cases, there are certain default parameters and IoT vendors, they don't know about secure by default principle. They use something by default in admin admin by default principle. So many of these IoT devices, even if they allow to configure 
secure settings, by default, they don't have those. They have like this default insecure configuration. So it becomes the user's responsibility how to configure their own device. And of course, some devices need to communicate. And here we open the whole chapter of insecure communication because these small and sorry, stupid devices, they don't have opportunities to use normal communication protocols, to use TLS 1.3, for example, they end up using insecure Bluetooth. And Bluetooth, as you know, Bluetooth was insecure protocol without any built-in encryption for three versions, four versions, for a long time, right? It means that developers who create applications, who create firmware for IoT devices, need to think about all these security issues. They need to think about their dependencies, amount of code, about um, how not to make mistakes in C, memory management, how to transfer data between devices or devices and the hubs in a secure way. And of course, sometimes to take into consideration the physical attacks like the side channel attacks that allow to, to leak data, to steal data based on the timing, based on the CPU, like electricity consumption, yada, yada, yada. IoT security is very, very, very complicated. And the problem is that we already have billions of insecure devices around us and it won't get better. It will get worse a year after year. Yeah, I was talking to a guy, Limited Results, who um, did a lot of security analysis using voltage glitching on ESP32s, and he like hacked them in a way that was totally irreversible. So the chip was just it it was it was forever hacked. You could never reverse it. So the device was compromised for good. Another example is NFC cards. You know how you use your banking card or your card card for like metro for transport in your city. So these are NFC cards. These are simple cards with NFC modules. And right now, a lot of fintech applications like cryptocurrency applications, they start using those cards. So in most cases, these things are vulnerable because they use NFC, which is, again, doesn't have any built-in security measures. This is just a protocol. And again, it's a developer's responsibility to build in some security. And um, for last, I don't know, six months, I've seen so many insecure systems with IoT just because it's, it's really, really, really complicated. An approach that... I would like to kind of you know, advertise here to focus your attention here, uh, especially with IoT is defense in depth, right? Because we cannot have a perfectly secure device. We cannot have a perfectly secure firmware, software, yada, yada. We need as the developers, we need to build in a lot of security methods. Like to build in defense in depth, meaning that we will have a lot of security controls on different levels. If we're talking about device starting from physical security, physical anti-tampering measures, going through firmware security, depending on which operating system our device operates, if it's like a real operating system or if it's this small RTOS, real-time OS, like smaller operating system. We need to configure those operating systems correctly. We need to disable, it's called Linux hardening. We need to disable all the packages we don't use. We need to have this secure configuration, yada, yada. Only then we can go to the software level, to the application level, where again, we remember all the OWASP guidelines and cheat, cheat sheets, 
we uh, we care about secure coding and implementation security and application security then we have a layer of data because our devices they do something they they operate on data and if we unfortunate they operate on sensitive data right and we need to protect those data we are talking about data address encryption we are talking about application level encryption then these devices they send data somewhere so transmission security, secure communication protocols. And of course, uh, usually it ends up with some device hub or device control server, right? If there is some entity, some backend service that can control, that can communicate with these devices. So we're talking about its security as well. So with IoT, we have all these multiple levels and we need to work on security on each of this level. And if we are lucky enough, our system will be kind of secure for next kind of couple of years, but then insecure again. Well, then if we're lucky enough, we get to start dealing with the human elements because it's the, the way that people approach these systems, then all of a sudden they get creative once your system works. So like with parking meters and stuff, they'll have the IoT solution. It's there, it's solar powered, it's independent. You put your credit card in or you you tap it and pay by app and you can pay. And so what frequently happens is somebody will walk up, they'll slap a broken pay by this app, and they'll just put a sticker over like the QR code. So you'll go there and you'll pay to park and you'll get a message that says, thank you for paying. You got a bill. Turns out you paid somebody else. So now first you're out the money that you use to pay. Nobody even knows who. Um, and second, you get a ticket for parking unpaid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And with increasing amount of these smart devices around us, we will have more and more issues like that. You can remember latest issues with, um, with smart cars, right? With Tesla, that people just they just go nearby the the car. They use NFC, NFC again, insecure protocol. They use NFC reader, and they can brute force or like attempt to brute force the car keys and just unlock somebody else's car. This is the future that we have. Or the repeaters where they have one person go stand next to somebody who's in the restaurant. It transmits the signal real quick to somebody who stands next to the car, and then they just steal it because the the key looks like it's in the car. I have um, a car. I won't tell the manufacturer. And there's the the remote key that has. You have a car for now. Oh well, yes. And so the remote key is one of those that the the bad guys with the right device can remotely activate, and so steal your car. And so the advice is to keep the key fob in a metal box. And that's what I do. Faraday cage, right? Keep everything yes, exactly. in the Faraday cage. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. We're getting into a real weird future where you have yeah. to carry a Faraday well, cage. Can I? Can we just go back to say Anastasia said, which I think is something that we should be teaching developers as well. And and she talked about uh, defense in depth, and that is something that then again, job developers should learn about, and um, that comes to them starting to write. Um, putting out logging information and tracing information about the behavior of their application and that it's not working the way that they're expecting. Because so much of defense in depth is, is yeah, you have the, all the layers, but it's also all the warning systems that weird things are happening. And it's just another thing to put on the list for Java developers to learn 
All right. That covers a lot of really good information about security, both of applications as well as uh, Java applications. So I want to say thank you very much, first of all, for the guests and also for the listeners. And keep an eye on Fujay for future articles about development and everything related to the OpenJDK world. Thank you very much. Give me a foo, give me a J, give me the friends of OpenJDK.